It is a privilege and honor to come here again. It's always good to be invited to preach somewhere, but to be invited again, it's even better. So it is a really good privilege for me to come here with my whole family and uh, to this church that through her elders and pastor have been an encouragement to me since I've met them in, back in April um, in a presbytery meeting. I have been deeply encouraged from your elders and pastors and to administer for the first time the Lord's Supper. It makes this church already part of my history um, in a very meaningful way, as I sure believe the Lord has given me the privilege to meet you all. And um, anyways, let us now open our Bibles for what really matters, which is the preaching of the Word of God. John chapter 21, as you can see in your bulletins in orders of worship. John 21, verses 15, and we go all the way to verse 19. John 21, 15 through 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version. So if there's a different word there, there's not in your translation. I'm not making it up in the fly. I always like to point that out. Thus says the living and life-giving Word of God. I'm going to read, pray, and preach. Let us do so now. Please pay careful attention to it. So, I'm going to start from verse 15. As I said, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, come upon us now with your Spirit And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all your people's hearts be pleasant in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, we pray. Amen. Dear congregation, brothers and sisters, most of us, if not all of us, have probably experienced the pains of a broken or or for a better word, maybe wounded bruised 
relationship. It is quite a painful thing to endure. And I think the word wounded is very fitting to describe this sort of relationship because it provides us with a very good illustration for all of us to understand what I mean. Even you children, I'm sure when you were playing around, you probably hurt yourself, maybe wounded yourself, or got a bruise in your skin. And, and what would otherwise come to you as an act of gentleness, a mere touch of someone in that place that is hurting it seems like a threat, and it, it hurts, and it causes you to be angry. So a, a fractured relationship is quite a sensitive thing. Maybe you have experienced that with your spouse, and, and you had a difficult time in your marriage, and, and it is quite a painful thing to endure. Maybe you have experienced that with a friend, or, or with your parent, or a child. Uh, the more, the closer... The closer the person is to you, the, the hardest it is to, to deal with such a fractured, wounded, or bruised relationship. And, and by what we read in the Gospels, we, we realize that we have an example of that very thing uh, between Jesus and Peter here in our text. Uh, we, we read that Peter, although he was always boasting on his strength, on his love for the Lord, and even saying the Gospel of Mark, Oh Lord, even if all of them fall away yet, I will never do such a thing. But then we know what happened. And as the Lord predicted, Peter denied him not once or twice, but three times before the rooster crowed. And when that happened, the gospel of Luke that you were going through adds an extra layer of drama to the scene of Peter's denial by saying that right after he denied the third time what happened, Jesus looked right at him. And in looking at him, the text goes on to say that Peter went out of that place and wept bitterly. Thus we last heard of Peter here in John's gospel, for that very reason, being grieved, full of sadness and despair for what he had done. But then, when we, once we reach chapter 20 of the gospel of John, we see him differently. We read about him eager to meet with the Lord. We read about him running to the tomb in John 20. In, in earlier in chapter 21 here, you may read him throwing himself in the water and swimming in a hurry to meet with Jesus. And you should ask, what in the world caused such a change? Well, Mark's gospel, that's why it's important for us to have more than one gospel. They are complementary, not contradictory, as some would say. Mark's gospel gives us a hint for this sudden change in Peter's heart. In Mark 16, 7, you read that the angel told Mary Magdalene to inform the disciples and Peter that Jesus wanted to meet with them in Galilee. So Peter likely imagined that Jesus would not want him or count him as a disciple anymore after what he had done. And, and, and therefore, being mentioned by name probably brought hopes to his heart that the Lord will deal with him graciously and forgive him for his, his grievous denial. And that's what happened right here in our passage. Dear congregation, the enemies of your soul both 
the enemies within and without, they often strike your hearts after you have committed a certain sin. And you hear a quote-unquote voice telling you that all hope is lost, that you might as well go on and keep sinning because there is no more hope for you. There is no more hope for a joyful and useful Christian life. It's done. However, the Christian way is the way of repentance and restoration. And this is precisely what we see in our passage this morning. We see in a nutshell that Christ restores penitent sinners and enables them to persevere to the end. Christ restores penitent sinners and enables them to persevere to the end. And here you have your two points in this phrase, in this sentence. Granted restoration in verses 15 through 17 and granted perseverance 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19. Gracious restoration, granted perseverance. Let's see first, gracious restoration, which is the bulk of our sermon. The major portion of the sermon is going to be these verses because this is the core of their interaction that leaves more room for us to learn about the way of restoration. So let's first analyze this restoration by looking at Jesus' questions. And the first thing that we should notice about all these questions that, that Jesus posed to Peter is that there was indeed a need for restoration. And, and the hint for us is by the way in which the Lord addressed His disciple. He called him, not Peter, but Simon, the son of Jonah. Simon was Peter's name before he met the Lord Jesus. Who changed his name to Peter? And he hadn't referred to Peter in that way in the whole Gospel of John until this very moment. And by calling him Simon, Jesus was already hint, hitting, giving him a hint that there was something wrong, that, that their relationship was indeed fractured, that, that Peter, in a sense, that's even, that's even more fitting, had behaved indeed as someone who didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it was only fitting for the Lord to call him by the name that he had before he even met the Lord, if he was in denial of knowing the Lord. Back to the questions now. All three of them are virtually identical. There is therefore a slight difference in the first one. Christ began with a veiled, not so veiled rebuke. He said, Peter... You who are always so eager to compare yourself with your peers, do you love me more than these? You see that Christ is drawing a comparison here. Well, P Peter did that all the time. Both Matthew chapter 26 verse 33 and Mark chapter 14 verse 29 recorded him saying what I said in our introduction. Even if all of them fall away, yet I will not. So now what Jesus is doing is humbling his servant. And in a sense, he questions Peter's own identity by calling him Simon. And by writing or, or saying the question, formulating the question the way he did, he's also humbling a proud service in very much need of that. Another thing that stands out in these questions is that all of them focus on love. Christ could have asked 
anything from Peter. He could ask, how much do you know about me? Do you have moral integrity? But no, he asked Peter very simply yet profoundly, do you love me? And at this point, it seems appropriate to me to explain a certain detail of this passage that I would skip, honestly, if not so many preachers and commentaries will describe a lot of significance to the different words for love that we have here in this passage. And the two words are agapao and phileo. There's from agape and philos, two kinds of love that sometimes in the Bible convey something different. But in the Gospel of John, the evangelist treats these two verbs as synonyms. So we ought not to deflect the, the depth and the, the urgency that we need to evaluate our own hearts by paying attention to the curiosity of the two words. So let me take his out of the equation, if that would be in the back of your mind as I preach him. Let me just see if he's going to speak about that. So because of that, let me show you why I believe that this is irrelevant for our passage. First, you see how John uses the different words for love, the different Greek words for love, to mean the same thing in his gospel. The first thing we see, only a couple I want to show you. First, in John 3.35, we read that the Father loves, God the Father loves the Son. And there he uses the verb agapao, which is the divine or stronger form of love. While in John 5.20, he writes again that God the Father loves using the other verb loves the son therefore since both of these verbs are used by john in his gospel to describe the the love that the that god the father has for the son they cannot convey different things god is unchangeable isn't he still in our own context in verse 17 what was the reason that peter was grieved because the lord asked him the third time if the verbs would convey different levels of love, it would be like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you like me? That is a complete different question, right? Do you love me or do you like me? But no, Peter is upset. Why? Because the Lord asked him the third time, do you love me? Have you established this point? Let us move on. As I said, their relationship, Peter and Jesus's, was fractured was broken and their fellowship was compromised this is the reason why jesus asked him do you love me love brethren is what stands at the foundation of every meaningful relationship love is the foundation upon which the house of our relationship must be built and jesus christ did not want peter as a mere Servant, what did he say? I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. He said that because they knew what he was about to do. And, and what he had done, in fact, in this passage, as it is the resurrected Christ talking to Peter here. Remember, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Therefore, we learn not only for, from what he says or what he does, but on how he does things. There's many different ways to do things, but there's always the wisest way. And certainly Christ does things in the wisest way possible, for he is perfect in wisdom himself. So we should always assume that he has a purpose 
to do the things the way he is doing, being himself the personification of wisdom. And, and he had, we saw that he had a purpose in asking Peter that very first question, withdrawing that comparison. And for now, the purpose that Jesus had may not be clear yet to Peter and the others, but this brings us to the, the sec second thing that I want to see um, within Grace's restoration, which, is, which are Peter's answers. As we observe his answers, let's keep an eye on what Jesus' questions are producing in him. See the way he answers in verses 15 and 16. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Can you see the difference? Peter was humbled by Christ. The result was already flourishing. Thus he became very realistic. He neither was boasting about his strength, nor regarded himself as the rock anymore. Instead, he appeals to Christ's knowledge of his heart. After being asked the third time if he loved Christ, he was grieved. Verse 17. And the reason for his grievance is that he realized what was happening. And his threefold denial came to mind. And as Christ asked him the third time, Do you love me, Simon? Suddenly it makes sense why he's being called Simon. Though he had boasted before and Jesus was, had warned him that he would fall, he still denied the Lord. Indeed, he's not Petros, the rock in and of himself, but Simon. And you see, John prepared us to reach that conclusion in a very interesting way. He, in a sense, drew the scene of this interaction to get our minds back to the scene of Peter's denial. And he did that in chapter 21, where we are, verse 9. There we read John's mentioning a specific charcoal of fire, or fire coals, depending on your translation. And the only other time that this Greek word appears in the entire New Testament is to describe in John 18 and 8, 18, 18, to describe the scene where Peter was warming himself while denying the Lord. So in a sense, John is, 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 is preparing a scenario for, for Peter's encounter with Jesus in our passage. And the scenario itself functions as if Jesus had brought Peter back to the scene of his demise and re reaching out for him he raised him of the death, out of the death of his own sinfulness. And Peter now does not deny, but confesses the name of his Lord. Thus, in the third answer, Peter goes even further in his confession and says, Not only you know that I love you, but Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. All things things. In other words, you are omniscient. And really, this portion of Scripture does not make sense at all if Peter was not assuming that Jesus was God the Son, the second 
person of the Trinity. That Jesus was the God of Psalm 139. Oh God, you have searched me and known me. Oh believer, what comfort you may have in these words. For if you test yourself, if you dig deep into your hearts, it would be impossible for you to look at the resurrected Christ in the eye and say, Lord, behold my thoughts, for you know all things. Behold my motivations, my inclinations, my words, my actions. Oh Lord, behold all of this and see how much I love you. No. For if we are to love Christ truly, we need first to realize that we are naturally unable to love Him, to do so. Thus Peter did not appeal to anything in himself anymore, but to the perfect and complete knowledge of God the Son. There is no hope for those who boast in anything but Christ. Are you boasting in any other thing this morning, believer? Perhaps your bank account, your job, your holiness, your long-standing honorary membership in the Reformed Church, your doctrinal precision in Orthodox confession, in any of your gifts, in your looks, whatever it is, because you're not as bad as the people sitting next to you? Those are all good things in and of themselves, but don't you dare to boast on them. Don't you dare to boast on anything but on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. And, even, and if it weren't from, for Him, you would still be damned with anything that you were boasting about this morning. So listen to Christ's voice asking you today, do you love me? What is your answer to this question? Let me try to help you to reflect upon this question, which is undoubtedly the most important question of all. And I tell you, children, you need to own up for that, for that answer. Just like the bread that your dad ate would not feed you, his faith will not save you. Let me help you to reflect upon these important, profound, life-changing, life-giving questions. Let me share with you three fruits of genuine love, very briefly. Genuine love, first, keeps the beloved in mind. A young man cannot help but think on that lady the whole day and has a hard time keeping track of the rest of his responsibilities. A new father spends the whole day in anticipation of getting home and seeing his firstborn. It's, it's, it's a magical feeling. I, I remember very vividly. And as we keep our loved ones in mind, we talk about them so often, don't we? When we really love someone, we talk about them so often. I remember judging those parents who couldn't stop talking about their children. I'm just one of them now. See, I'm even preaching, talking about them right now. How much do you think about Christ? Do you nurture warm thoughts about your Savior during your day? How much do you think 
and talk about Him. Have you abandoned your first love, Christian? Second, genuine love takes pleasure in communing with the beloved. When we keep our beloved in mind, we look forward to being with that person. Otherwise, what's the point? Do you love being in the presence of Christ? Do you love the public worship on the Lord's Day right now? What we are doing, I'm not, able, I'm not asking if you come. I mean, you are here. But do you love being here? Please pay, please pay careful attention to my question. Are you excited about coming to the presence of Christ? That you're about to enjoy a sweet spiritual fellowship with Him who gave Himself a ransom for your sins. If you are, you come tonight to hear more about what happens when we worship just where we are. Third, genuine love produces an earnest desire to please the loved one at the expense of one's comfort and convenience. Think about a godly mother. She won't rest until she sees their children comfortable and happy. She may even make a Facebook post about it. She's not going to rest. She, the way our beloved has asked us to please Him, therefore, is by obeying His commandments. Do you love obeying Christ? I'm not asking if you try to obey. I'm asking if you love to obey Christ. How many times we grumble as we need to deny our selfish desires for convenience and comfort when obedience actually demands something from us. Do you love Him? Now you can understand a little bit why Peter stopped boasting in himself. Why he had to appeal to Christ's knowledge. And at the same time, you can understand why Christ's love is never questioned in our passage. For Peter had just seen the immeasurable demonstration of Christ's love for his people in his sacrifice. And he realized that the Lord was restoring him. He was, Jesus was like a surgeon tearing his heart apart with this poignant questions so that Peter could be healed. And maybe he's doing this very thing to you this morning, believer. By means of his preached word, he's speaking to you, maybe hurting your heart right now so that he can heal you this very morning. Praise be the Lord who is so merciful and whose mercies are precisely expressed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son, who not only restores penitent sinners, but also recommissions them from use for service and grants them perseverance. Verses you see here, verses 18 and 19. But first, let's see Christ's Recommission. You see, by denying the Lord, Peter was not above reproach anymore. He had sinfully boasted and rejected the Lord in a public manner. Therefore, he needed to undergo a public 
process of restoration. We see that this interaction between Peter and Jesus took place in front of the disciples. In verse 15 we read, When they had finished breakfast, and there is no textual indication that the Lord took Peter aside in order to engage in this process of restoration. Uh, therefore, this passage is but one example in Scripture that sets the tone for the need of public disciplines when the sins is public. Let me tell you a seasoned word about church discipline that I deem necessary. For we live in a day and age of extreme individualism. And one result of that is that when it comes to church discipline, we understand and we take it as a personal attack. But that is certainly not the case. Church discipline, in a nutshell, is an expression of Christ's rule over the church. It was ordained by Him. You see that in Matthew 18. And the goal of discipline is threefold. First, as, as everything, God's glory. Second, the peace and purity of the church for whom Christ died. And third, the restoration of the sinner that is in sin. And this is precisely what you, you see happening in our passage this morning. And before we move on, a little side note. Uh, many Roman Catholics use this passage to justify their claims that the Lord here instituted the papacy in Peter by these words of free commission, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He's therefore the supreme shepherd of the sheep. That's, they argue, the supreme shepherd over the whole church. That is the, the words in their catechism. Peter, however, Peter, however, did not understand the word that way. If you see that in 1 Peter 5, notice how in verse 4, he regards himself to be a fellow elder with non-apostles. That was quite clear to Peter that Jesus was not instituting him as a pope and should be for all of us. All this being said, it seems that our passage primary focus is on the character of that man whom God wants to be an under-shepherd for His people. This is why the Lord of the flock restored Peter so that he could recommission him to this very purpose. And in restoring Peter, the Lord shaped his heart to be fit for the service. Therefore, Peter's transformation is paradigmatic for knowing what kind of man the Lord wants to be over His people. And this man is to be someone who loves the Lord preeminently, and it is a humble man. And you may ask, well, but I'm, I'm not a pastor or an elder. What implications does this have for me? Let, me? let me share at least three of them. Very briefly, by wanting this sort of man to be your spiritual leader, Christ is showing how much He loves you. Why? Because you don't need a nanny or a life coach. You need someone who loves the Lord more than He loves you so that He would speak out the chief shepherd's voice that you need to hear, to guide you. Second, it teaches you how you should pray for those who are your elders. What you should want to see the Lord producing in them, for they can't do that for themselves. Well, we pray so much for doctors when we are ill, 
uh, when we need a surgery, when we need... When we are desperate, we pray for them, for their instrumentality. Oh, Lord, use the doctors to heal such and such. Why don't we pray for our spiritual doctors? Pray for us. We need it. Third, whereas this may be especially true for pastors and elders here, consuming, a consuming love for Christ is the only right fuel for any vocation under the sun. Anything. Remember the principle in Ephesians 6, 7. We are to do everything to do as for the Lord. And therein lies the secret for you to remove bitterness from your life. To stop complaining about the place where the Lord has put you at this very day. This is the secret to have the first question of the Shorter Catechism to be not only memorized by you, but lived out by you. For you cannot enjoy the Lord forever if you do not glorify Him at the moment you are living. What's more, you cannot glorify the Lord in the moment you are living if you do not love Him. So please listen to the voice of the Savior now asking this question, Do you love me? And as you ponder, let me go ahead and press a little bit more as we transition to the point of perseverance. How much do you love Him? It is more than anything else. It is more than even your own life. Every time I read stories like the ones that are in Fox's Book of Mortars, I ask myself the same question over and over and over again. What would I do if my life was threatened? Would I deny my Lord? What about you? How much Philippians 1.29 is truth in your life? Because for you, it was not only granted to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. What about Acts 5.41? So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer his name I believe the answers to these questions are before us right here in our text specifically in the last two verses that deals with granted perseverance verses 18 and 19 and what we have in verse 18 this is very straightforward is our briefest point coming to an end we, we read the expression stretching out of hands which mainly refers to death by crucifixion. And there are many reports about Peter dying on a cross. You, you read about that on the church father, Father Tertullian. You read about him being crucified upside down in the church historian of the early church, Eusebius. But they're not very conclusive, in my opinion. I would just say, I don't know if that happened. I don't think we can know for sure. But the point here, the main point that Christ is getting at is that Peter would die the death of a martyr, and that we know he did. And, and we can see the irony here in God's providence. For when Peter stood up and was confident in his strength, declaring that he would die for Christ, what he did, he denied. But now as he had been brought, brought back to the reality of his sincere and humble love for Christ, now Jesus looked him in the eye and says, you now are ready to die for me. 
In like manner, dear congregation, if you are now trusting in your faith, in your nerves of steel, whatever things you potentially have, you will fall. But if you come confessing your sinfulness, boasting nothing but in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may find yourself where Peter is, right at the end of our passage, ready to die for his Lord. Of course, not everyone is called to die as a martyr, and we should not actually want that. But every single one of you who profess his name this morning, you have affirmed that you are willing to, or at least imply that. What you confess in your profession of faith certainly imply that he, Christ, is more important to you than your own life. After all, he is the only source of life. He's life himself and and that should cause you to tremble that should that should humble you but brethren if jesus can take a blasphemous love lacking peter who saw all the things that he saw jesus doing and still denying and turn him into a martyr by the power of the spirit that in chapter 20 he blew upon the disciples if you remember doesn't this bring hope for you today who tremble at the weakness of your own faith and love for Christ. That's where you should be. The Christian who knows his faults is the one who receives their strength from the Lord. Then in verse 19, Peter heard a call that certainly gave strength and hopes to his heart. What was the call? Follow me. And this is connected certainly to the first time that he was called from the fishing boat. Follow me. At the beginning of the Gospel of John. So Peter was now restored, recommissioned, and reinstated as an apostle. But most importantly than anything else, he was recognized and received back as a follower of Christ. Followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, they are not made perfect in one instant. It takes a long time for most of us. And if you too are a follower, you are being perfected by God daily as divine grace is transforming you until He appears. The call to follow Christ is at the core of the gospel. And it is a call that redirects, redirects our whole existence. We who were once away from the Lord are now brought near. Thus, regardless of your standing with Christ this morning, this call, this offer is for you, my friend. If you are outside of Christ, but you can hear His voice, as I heard one day, this proclamation through this proclamation, you are being called to repent of your sins and believe in a perfect Savior who died suffering the punishments that your wrongdoings deserve. Are you going to answer His call? But if you are also a long-standing believer, this call, follow me, is filled with much more significance to you this morning 
than it was in the past. And why? You know how much your sins still assail you. You know how many times through your selfishness you have failed and denied your Lord through your thoughts, through your motivations, through your words, through your actions. And He still tells you, follow me. Christ restores penitent sinners and enables them to persevere to the end. We have seen in this passage that Christ, through His own love, restores the fractures that our sins cause in our relationship with Him. Thus, if you love Christ, even if you have a weak love, even if it is a mustard seed type of love, be assured that this love was produced in you by Him. For you cannot produce even a tiny bit of love for God in your own strength. But it was given to you. And He's nurturing that love right now as He waters it by the Word and washes it by the blood that is really represented in the table before me and you. And what's more, He will never let you go. He has prepared good works for you beforehand so that you may walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Therefore, take heed to His voice and use all the means available to cultivate the seed of love He has planted in your heart. Read His Word. Pray. Sing back to Him His praises. Love His people and serve one another. Again, regardless of where you are today, whether in Christ or what of Christ, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Look at the love of Christ who died for sinners exactly like you and rest in this love. Trust in His name and go forth from these doors with true purpose and joy. Purpose for your life because you're reconciled with God. Therefore, you may also glory in your tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us that love in the first place. Purpose and joy in your Christianity because in humility... You were drawn closer to Christ, who is Himself the source of all joy and happiness. Do you love Him? Do you love Him? And the third time, do you love Him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that gives us so much more than we could ever imagine. How rich is Your Word, Lord. How powerful it is. It penetrates our souls. It changes us. It melts our solid hearts. And then You shape them as You please. Oh Lord, You have given us strengths. You have made us with our temperaments, with our tendencies even with our weaknesses, so that your strength may be displayed in our overcoming our enemies and the fiercest of all enemies are our own hearts 
the old man. For our own hearts are the battlefield that both the world and the devil use to attack us. And if we kill the old man, Lord, they're not going to have grounds to attack us. Oh Lord, may we die with Christ so that we may live with him. Oh Lord, bless your word. Do with it what you please. May we be assured that it will never, never come back empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was uttered. And in this confidence, we pray in Jesus' name, the word of God himself. Amen.